The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. This morning's sermon is going to be from 1 Peter. I'm going to be reading the first two verses of the book and then the last three verses of it. So 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And chapter 5, verse 12, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greeting, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Well, good morning. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, what a gift to be able to worship you together, to be able to sing praises to you together, to have your love poured out in our hearts together, to have Jesus Christ given to us as a people. These are things that angels long to look into. And so we praise you as the giver, and we ask for more, Lord. We ask for more. We thank you for the gift of First Peter, and we ask, Lord, that you would plant it deep in us this morning so that we might grow up in every way into him who is the head, that one man, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I'm sure I'm not alone in being eager to return to our normal practice of preaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And that's what we'll be doing next week as we dive into Luke, starting actually in chapter 3. I think I have that right, Pastor Kenny. I will save Luke 1 and 2 for Advent later this year. But that's our typical practice, and we haven't been doing it since the end of July when we wrapped up Acts. And so I know I'm eager. I'm sure all of you are eager to get back into that, uh, into that with Luke next week. And we've got one more standalone sermon today. And so it is an overview of 1 Peter. Uh, in a few weeks, I'll actually be down in Nebraska visiting with the youth of a church that's close to me and my family, giving a series of mini-sermons, I guess you could call them, through 1 Peter. And so there was an opportunity, a need to fill this pulpit here today. And so I'm just very eager to preach 1 Peter to you. It wasn't that long ago that we went verse by verse through this letter, um, to which I say all the more because 1 Peter is just chock full of goodness for us. I've been asking people, what comes to mind when you think of 1 Peter? And there's one thing that rises to the top. I wonder if it's what's coming to your mind. But I, I think everybody I've asked has said the same thing, and that is suffering. Suffering comes to mind. And that's, that's right, because 1 Peter gives us a lot to say about suffering. When I think of 1 Peter, I actually don't think about it as like suffering with a number of other things tacked on, which is not what I'm saying. The others have been saying either. But rather that there's a broader canvas. There's a bigger thing going on, and suffering is being painted along with many other things on that canvas. And so what I hope you see this, uh, this morning 
is that in this letter, God is giving you the resources. He's giving you categories. He's giving you strength necessary for daily living as a Christian. More than simply focusing on concentrated episodes of suffering in our lives, we are being given wisdom for running the whole race with endurance as a follower of Christ day by day. And so that's the title of this sermon, Run With Endurance. And I'm sure you're getting overtones of Hebrews 12, if you're familiar with Hebrews 12, and you wouldn't be wrong. So go ahead and turn there. We're actually going to read the first couple of verses as we get into this. And maybe the title is a bit confusing because you're thinking to yourself, where does it talk about a race or running in 1 Peter? But if you were to ask me, you take Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and what's a book of the Bible that expounds those truths? Oh, it's 1 Peter. It's 1 Peter all the way. It's got everything to do with endurance and has everything to do with Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. So let's go ahead and read those verses together now. Verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I'll tell you what, First Peter is about that. First Peter is about endurance. First Peter is about running a race. It's about staying power. It's about faithful plotting. It's about getting to the end and leaning in to the tape. In First Peter, you can sense mile after mile after mile of the fight, uh, of, the fight of faith clipping by you like the telephone poles on the highway of life. And the question is, will we be faithful to the end? Now, we don't have time to look at all the examples, but I'd encourage you to glance through the pages of First Peter, maybe even during the sermon. You get a little distracted, mind wanders. Do this. Look through First Peter and just see how often Peter is giving us a concept of time, and particularly the current moment moving toward the future. It's like a journey. It's like a race. And Peter is relentlessly focused on the outcome of the race because we have a glorious inheritance waiting for us and Peter wants us to get there. He wants us to make it. I want us to make it. And so, as we said, the main thing I hope you take away today is that in First Peter, you have been given the resources, you have been given the strength to run the race with endurance, mile after mile. And so, what are these resources? I'm going to highlight four of them today, and you can remember them with the acronym MILE. We've got mercy, identity, love, and exile. And the four points that go along with it are receive his mercy. Receive his mercy. Know your identity. Grow in love. Live live as an exile. First, receive his mercy. So go ahead and look with me back in 1 Peter now, chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, 
He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so here's the first resource for endurance. Receive the mercy of God. Salvation is something that God does. It's something he does. Just look in this passage about all the things he's doing. Do you see it? He caused you to be born again. He raised Jesus from the dead. He gave you an untouchable inheritance, which he is keeping for you even now. He is guarding you through faith until he fully reveals your salvation. So he's the one doing all of it. But here's a key point. What is energizing all this activity toward you? What is positioning his providence to you? It's his mercy. According to his great mercy. So we see it's not just a little mercy. Mercy doesn't come in a syringe. It's his boundless mercy. And the way I like to think of it, it's actually not the the right Greek word, which is disappointing to me, but the Lord knows. It's his mega mercy. According to his mega mercy, he does all these things for us. Do you want to know how God is positioned toward you? Everything in your life, everything that's not in your life, all of it is according to his mega mercy. How do we make this mercy our own so that it's ours? When you look at the list of actions that we just read, you didn't do any of them. God did all of them. And so it's, I think in one sense, right to say that God's mercy comes to us whether we like it or not. Whether we like it or not. He causes us to be born again. He's the one doing all this work in us. And so if you're not a Christian today, if you're not born again, you must know this. You can't make yourself be converted. You can't make yourself be born again. God is the one who does that work. And he is at work even to bring that about. So listen to Titus 3, 4. Titus 3, 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but what? But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So mercy comes about by providence, or it comes not at all. And this is good news for us. Because once you become a Christian, the providence continues. It's not a syringe. It doesn't run dry. Even when we're stuck in sin, even when we're wandering away from the truth, even then, surely, and that's the word in Psalm 23, surely his goodness and his mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. So the question remains, how do you make God's mercy your own? And the answer is very simple. It's so simple a child can understand it. What do we do? We receive it. We receive his mercy day after day, mile after mile, over and over again. He gives and we receive. And so we say, more mercy, Lord. More mercy. His faithfulness is very great. And daily mercies are very new. If you want to run the race with endurance, you must train your heart. 
to receive the mercy of God that is yours through Christ by the Spirit. And I want to give you one more example from the text. So go back to chapter 1. We're going to read uh, verse 18 here. Chapter 1, verse 18. Okay. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. We'll pause there. So all of that, that is a variation on the theme of verses three to five in chapter one, isn't it? It's the same thing. All the salvation language, who's doing the activity? God is. And so you should read verses 18 to 21 under the banner of according to his mega mercy. Okay? But then he adds this. So that your faith and hope are in God. So God's mercy toward you is the very thing that gives you hope for the future. It's the energy that enlivens and strengthens your faith. God's grace and mercy in the past are the down payment of his grace and mercy toward you in the future. And therefore, Peter's message is clear to you. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's verse 13, chapter 1. So you must live your life by faith in future grace or faith in future mercy, if you will, because it's basically the same thing. Do you want to make it to the end? Do you want to make it even just to the end of this week? Then receive the mercy of God toward you in Christ. Point number two, know your identity. So remember, Mile, we've got mercy, M, identity, I. And Peter says that if we're going to arrive at our inheritance, you have to know your identity. So look at chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then we just read verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Identity. Identity. So in in 2020, Christian professor and author Carl Truman wrote a book that's made quite a few waves. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And if you open up the dust flap, you read this. Modern culture is obsessed with identity. It's obsessed. Who am I? Where do I belong? What am I proud of? What am I ashamed of? What, if I had it, would fulfill me? I fear it's all too common to profess to be a Christian and to let the culture tell you who you are. It's all too common. And that's what Tim Keller said in a talk to students at Wheaton back in 2015, which I highly recommend. It's called Our Identity, the Christian Alternative to Late Modernity's Story. And he gave that talk one month after the New York Times had run a very long piece called The Year We Obsessed Over Identity. Obsessed 
Carl Truman wasn't kidding. And we know this in our hearts. I mean, that was seven, eight years ago. Here's the crux of the issue. Who names you? Who names you? Do you name yourself? Or does it come to us from outside? And I'll tell you, our culture is at war with itself on this topic. On the one hand, we have something like expressive individualism. I am whoever I decide I am. So I look inside and I find that, and then I make everybody else come into alignment with whatever I've found on there. And then on the other hand, we have what feels to me almost fatalist mindset. And it's maybe most evident in a hardline racialism that almost reduces identity to your skin color or your ethnic identity. And our society is so angry about all of this. But into this chaos, into this carnage, into this mess, God speaks and he says, you are a chosen race. You are. And so you have to get it into your head and into your soul that God is in the business of telling you who you are. He is, and you can't resist him. He doesn't, you don't have the authority to resist his authority. But man, there's so much freedom to just believe him, to receive him, to receive what he says. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. So God is taking the covenant promises of Exodus, of Deuteronomy, of Isaiah, of Malachi, and so many other places, and he's applying them to you. He's naming you. Notice again the sovereignty of God here. Verse 9. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so think back to the verses Thomas read for us earlier. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And this is an incredible comfort. Your identity cannot be moved because the sovereign God has named you and he has sprinkled you with his blood, the blood of his great mercy. Back to chapter 2 now. I'm going to continue, to verse, uh, continue on to verse 10 once again. Look at it a little bit more deeply. Now, we've already seen how mercy shows up there. And I'll tell you, when you read and reread First Peter, when you listen and re-listen to it, one of the things you notice is that these themes we're talking about are all interwoven together. They keep trespassing on each other's territory. And so you can't talk about identity without talking about mercy. Here, we are looking at uh, the prophet Hosea. God told Hosea to go find a prostitute in the market to make her his wife and to have children with her. Hosea 1 says this, Gomer conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, Call her name No Mercy, for I will, have no more, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword, or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, 
For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Just as God named Hosea's children, so he names and renames you. You have to know your identity if you're going to make it, if you're going to endure. You have to know God has chosen you. He has called you. He has set his love on you. Do you remember the three words, really the three names that we got from Colossians? Pastor Kenny, you gave these to us. Chosen, holy, beloved. These are names, and it even showed up in one of the songs that we sang this morning. Labor hard to let these names drip down deep inside your soul so that you can defeat the deception that comes at us day after day like water torture from the world and the flesh and the devil. But you don't only need to know your identity to fight the enemy. You also need to know it so that you can make sense of what God is doing in your sanctification. So let's look again at chapter 2. And now we're in verse 4. As you come to him, this is verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So God's giving you a new identity, a new purpose, And he's not somebody who's going to wind you up like a clock and stick you on the shelf and come back and check in now and again. No, no, no. He is a master builder and he's building you up into a temple. And I can't say it any better than C.S. Lewis did, so listen to him now as we draw this point to a close. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house than the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. I think all I will say to that is amen. So mercy, identity, and now love. Point three, grow in love. And so look at chapter three, and we'll be in verse eight now. Chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So this starts with finally. And last week, if you remember, Mike Lane gave us a really helpful category for thinking of the word finally. I don't know if it's just like, something about that word makes me think we're at the very, very end. But we're not. We're only halfway through First Peter. And so what's going on here? Well, as Mike taught us, 
There's something else going on. It's the end of a list. It's the end of a pattern of communication. And here, Peter's concluding a section that began back in chapter 2. Okay? Back in chapter 2. And that's where he begins to address different groups of people. So start in verse 11, and then we're going to kind of skip forward to these various groups. So verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And skip now to verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Skip down to verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters. 3 verse 1. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. And verse 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Which then brings us to verse 8. Finally, all of you. So what's Peter doing? He's bringing it back to the whole church. And I wish we had time to unpack the back half of chapter 2, but we don't. So for today, we're just going to go to chapter 3, verse 8. And this list of five characteristics we read is organized as a chiasm. As a chiasm. And that just means it's a list that's organized in a pretty intentional way. The first item in the list and the last item in the list, so unity of mind, humility of mind, these things are parallel to each other and they mutually interpret each other. And the next things in the list as we move in, sympathy and tenderheartedness, these are doing the exact same thing, parallel concepts that interpret each other. But the thing about a chiasm is that whatever is central in the list is central. It gives meaning to everything else. The meaning radiates out to everything else that's listed there. And so what Peter's saying is that all of these characteristics are the fruit of brotherly love. And so it's interesting then to try to relate everything else in the list to brotherly love. And for today, we'll just do one. We'll do unity of mind. Have you ever tried to relate unity of mind to brotherly love? And if it wasn't set up that way and we just said, what do you need for unity of mind? Some things that might come to the fore would be things like, I don't know, shared opinions, shared doctrine, a common confession, things like that. And of course, we need those things in order to have unity of mind. It's not that that's not the case. But Peter's approach here should remind us of how Paul deals with this in 1 Corinthians 13. And I'll just read verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And so we see love is foundational to unity. But Peter's got more. Look back at the end of chapter 1 now, verse 22. Chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly, from a pure heart. So not only are we commanded to have love, which we are, but it's supposed to be earnest. It's supposed to be sincere. And so Peter's, uh, and Peter is so concerned that you missed it that he's going to say it again for us in chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Sincere, earnest, what's going on here? Well, maybe we can relate it to a popular proverb. Have you ever heard a Christian say, well, you don't have to like everybody, but you do have to love them. 
Count me skeptical about that. Count me skeptical. I think it often serves as a way for us to avoid the clear commands of Scripture, to really do the heart wrestling. And I don't want to dog it. I mean, I'm sure we've all said it at different points. Of course, we like some people more naturally than others. Some people are more difficult to like. And of course, some people feel that way about me, I'm sure. But that simple fact is a different thing than giving yourself a pass, a pass for disliking somebody else. So think about your own heart. When you allow yourself to feed dislike, I guarantee you that brotherly love has been displaced somewhere along the way. So instead, focus our energy on whatever gap exists in our hearts between the call to sincere, earnest love and whatever's going on in here. That gap needs to be filled. And you can do it. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the promises. You can engage your heart. Retrain those muscles. Retrain your brain wiring. You can do this. You can grow in earnest, sincere love by the, by the Spirit's help. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. So what does all this have to do with endurance? Well, we need to look at two passages. The first one we'll look at more briefly, and then the second one will take a little bit longer. So first, turn to chapter 4, and we'll look at verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. We'll read verse 8 as well, which we briefly referred to just a moment ago. So here's verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And now verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And so the connection to endurance is right there, verse 7 into verse 8. The end is at hand, so choose to love people. The end is at hand, choose to love people. And listen to Jesus in Matthew 24. He's warning the disciples about the difficulties of the end of the age. And he says this, Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So love is fuel for endurance. It's fuel for endurance. The second passage, like I said, will take a bit longer because I really want to work at the text. And so go back to the end of chapter 1 and we're going to look into the beginning now of chapter 2, starting in, in verse 22. Notice that 22 is grounded, it's grounded in the verses that come after it. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again through the word of God. So here's the logic that we need to see. You've been born again through the word. It's what we just said. You've been born again through the word and for that reason love people. The word of God being referenced here is the good news of the gospel. And we see that in verse 25. This word is the good news that was preached to you. And the word of the gospel is described in verse 23 as living and abiding. The glory of man withers and fades, but the gospel, the word, it abides forever. And this is all groundwork for the command to love in verse 22. And so then as you transition into 2 verse 1, what's happening? Is there a new thought here? We have a new chapter. Does that mean it's like some random new insertion? No. No. Peter is simply carrying verse 22 forward. 
Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So chapter 2, verse 1, is simply giving us examples of what sincere and earnest love refuses to do. It refuses to do chapter 2, verse 1. And then pay attention now at verse 2. Verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. The translations differ here, but pure spiritual milk almost assuredly refers to the word of the gospel that we just read about in verse 25 of chapter 1. The NASB actually translates it this way, and the NASB is a more kind of word-for-word literal translation. It says, long for the pure milk of the word. And many of you will have memorized it that way. And so just as 2 verse 1 sprouts out of 122, so 2 2 sprouts out of verses 23 to 25 of chapter 1. And if we take it as a garden of self, or as a self-interpreting greenhouse in these, this garden of verses, here's what unfolds for us, unfolds like a flower. God in his mega mercy, he's caused you to be uh, reborn as a spiritual baby through the gospel. And just like a, uh, a newborn eats, sleeps, and you know, as it grows, so you will grow up into salvation as you feed on the gospel, as you love one another, and as you put away the flesh. And it all begins back in verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. How do you endure to the end? How do you grow? How do you run faithfully for the next mile and the one after that and the one after that? Grow in genuine love for others because you have been born again. And that leads us into the fourth point. Live as an exile. So we have mercy, identity, love, and now exile. If you're going to endure to the end, you must live as an exile. And this letter pulsates. It pulsates with an explicit consciousness that we are not home. We are not home. We live now in this age, and we wait with eager longing for the age to come. Right off the bat, Peter says he is writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And the letter is just shot through with the tension that we feel between our eschatological hope on the one hand and the trials and the temptations of this life, the life in the flesh on the other. If we're to endure as believers, we must learn to live in that tension. The tension shows up in four interwoven themes in 1 Peter, and we only have time to hit each of them super briefly. They're all like a sermon or a sermon series by themselves. So one paragraph apiece. First, he keeps reminding us that we have a glorious inheritance coming with the return of Christ. Doesn't he? It's over and over again. Jesus is going to bring with him praise and glory and honor. That's chapter 1, verse 7. This promise is the fuel. It's the goal of our hope. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it's kept in heaven for us. Do you feel dry in your spirit? Is life tedious for you right now? Do you feel a little gray? I would actually say that's to be expected. Yeah, it's imperfect, but it's actually to be expected because we live in exile. We live in exile right now. So stoke the fires of hope. 
by meditating on the birthright you have, the inheritance that you have in Christ. Second theme here, there is a strong sense of coming judgment. Coming judgment. And this actually goes hand in hand with the promise of inheritance. So that there is, on the one hand, great hope, and on the other, a sense of great fear. God will judge impartially according to each one's deeds. Chapter 1, verse 17. And both the church and the world will be subjected to that judgment. Chapter 4, verse 17. In much of evangelicalism today, there is a strong current of discomfort with this, with God as a judge. And so, where do you stand? Is God, in his, among his many attributes, is he also a judge as you think of him? What I see, and I don't mean this as coming down on anybody, it's just an observation. What I see is that the Christians who are most uncomfortable with God as judge tend to be the most comfortable here in this world. It's just a general observation. We are exiles. One day, <clears throat> one day, God will reveal his judgment. Third, we must train ourselves for godliness. <clears throat> the word that shows up in First Peter is holiness, most often, holiness. For godliness, for holiness, for sanctification. And there is a militaristic combat component to this. Peter says, prepare your minds for action in 113. He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking to put away sin in 4 verse 1. He says that we have an adversary, the devil, in chapter 5. Resist him. Resist him. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that we get weary in the fighting. We get weary. And as Pastor John observed many years ago, instead of fighting the flesh, we often turn to murmuring. That was his word, murmuring. We murmur with our friends. We murmur in our small groups about our imperfections, about our failures, our addictions, or our shortcomings. But Peter doesn't tell us to murmur. He doesn't tell us to feel sorry for ourselves. No, he says this. Live as people who are free. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And you were chosen by God for this very thing. Remember chapter 1? For obedience to Jesus Christ. So train yourselves for holiness. And then the fourth theme under live as an exile, prepare to endure suffering. Suffering. This is what we all think of when we think of 1 Peter. I'm giving it one paragraph. It's all over. So much could be said. Let me take it in this direction. The Minnesota State Legislature is currently reviewing House File 146 and Senate File 63. These are bills which would empower the state to take temporary jurisdiction away from parents over a minor seeking gender-affirming health care if the parents are pursuing action to prevent that health care from being given. Did you know that? I'm increasingly aware that we are exiles in this culture. That we're outcasts, in a way. I'm increasingly aware. Our beliefs perhaps are seen as being subversive to the state's interests. 
And this brings a certain urgency, a certain imminence to Peter's many words on suffering. And one of the things I love most about how Peter goes about sharing with us is he gives us an intimate portrait of Christ. Doesn't he? By his wounds, you have been healed. The power of the gospel is what would get us through any suffering, whether persecution or any other trial. And so live as an exile. We're going to close this out by looking at the two places other than chapter 1, verse 1, where the word exile appears. And that's the middle of chapter 1 and the middle of chapter 2. So listen for the four themes that we've just been talking about. Inheritance, judgment, holiness, suffering. This is chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Bethlehem, Run with endurance the race set before you. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And Peter would say, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.